Hey everybody, this is Eric Wright, the host of the Disco Posse Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Veeam Software. That's V-E-E-A-M.com. If you go to Veeam.com, you can check out Veeam Software, uh, especially in the kind of the times you're listening live. Uh, we're in a lot of craziness with business continuity and such, so uh, they're good friends of the podcast, longtime uh, friends of my blog. So with that, go to Veeam.com uh, and uh, share some love there. Today's episode features John Steele. John's the founder of Series Code. Series Code is a really cool outfit that actually is giving the idea that you can hire development teams that are really well-formed teams that can build great software, but they do it for partial or mostly equity and not all cash. If you're a startup founder, this is kind of a badass way to approach things. So if you think about what it means, not only just in the business aspect of it, it's very cool, but we explore a lot around John's history in the industry, uh, how he came to the idea of series code, how he operates a team, and how you actually can learn from John and his team what to do in order to run a more sort of DevOps-ish organization, and really the power of product management, it's just a lot of great lessons again. So big thanks to John Steele. And with that, let's get started. Hey, this is John Steele, founder of Series Code, and you're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. So, John, you have got a really, really cool story personally to me. And this is one of these lucky things where how I got started with the podcast was really around being lucky enough to be out in the industry, going to events and, and talking with really amazing people. And especially as I got more and more into discovering kind of founder stories and, and the startup the challenges and and the successes and and really really exploring how people can can do things now today that they couldn't do you know 10 years ago even and obviously the prevalence of can you know cloud software you know so software as a service the fact that you can build something without having a team of developers on staff full time. Like there's so many things that you, you didn't need to do anymore. You didn't need your own data center. Right. The long story that brings me to you is you've done exactly what is the most common problem. I think that people don't realize that they can get past with the help of what series code can do. And being a startup founder yourself, <laughs> right. you're you're in that neat thing where you you literally founded a startup to help people found startups. Found startups. <laughs> yep, you got that right. Yep. So John, if you want to give us a quick rundown on who you are, how you got to start, uh, and when where Series Code came from. Yeah, so Series Code provides world class software development at a startup price, and and what that means is that we're focused on startups because it's the area that I enjoy being in. I've been entrepreneurial since I was a kid, right? I started my first startup when I was, you know, uh, 21 years old. Um, and it just, it's the kind of environment I like to be in. And so that's what the company, that's what we focus on. But we found that our ability to keep our costs lower, um, that benefits, it doesn't really benefit large corporations. Uh, you know, big corporations are willing to pay double, double the price so they can have someone sitting in a cubicle down the road that they have a neck to ring when something goes wrong. Um, you know, with our remote uh, distributed workforce, we're able to keep our costs down so that we can give startups the best uh, price that they can get. And I go to a lot of um, startup events, uh, like these events where um, founders are pitching their ideas and such. And, you know, at these, you hear these stories of folks who scrape together, you know, fifty, hundred thousand dollars on their home equity line of credit or their credit cards or whatever, but they couldn't afford the big shop to write them software. So they went and found whoever it was that they could. And six months down the line, they spent all their money and they have nothing to show for it. And so we're trying to interrupt that. We want to get in before that happens um, with a you know, world-class agency. We have 28 uh, employees right now, but with a financial package that makes it possible for a startup to actually be able to afford it. Um, so we will take equity um, in exchange for part of the invoice payment so that we can push the cash payment down to what they would have to be paying somebody else or maybe even lower. And this is the really, really cool approach. And I, I see more and more people getting into the game of like, hey, look, I've got an idea. 
I, and I can actually make this happen. And, you know, we call them side hustles, call them whatever, right. you know, they're, they're startups now. I've, you know, I've got an idea that I'm, I want to bring to fruition. And like you said, it's this big challenge of the, the capital outlay to invest in this. And yeah, it's just time and time again, I hear the same story. It's always like, oh yeah, seconds, you know, I've got liens against everything I own <laughs> and, and that's it. It's a big leap of faith. It's not that it isn't a leap of faith, but you're now have a leap of faith where the company has skin in the game right? that you're hiring. And it's, this is a very, you know, I, I hate to use quid pro quo, God, because that's just way overused <laughs> in the world right now. <laughs> but really, like the foundations of behavioral psychology and the fact when you bring in somebody into an organization where they have more skin in the game, right. it's proven to have better outcomes. So you literally are bringing a team that through the fact that you're using equity share, you now, your entire team has skin in the game. And that's a, that's a huge win, I think, for a founder. How, like, how did you figure out that this was a way that you could actually run your side of the world? Right. And skin in the game is really you know, the, a great way to describe it. And we have um, clients who have prefer us over the other ones because they can go to their investors and say, look, these folks are invested. They're not going to be gone. You know, who wants to, to go pay some, some place to build an app and then they're, they're gone? And you have nobody to fall back on, nobody there to, you know, keep it moving, but, you know, fix, fix the problems that come up, just kind of be there with you to uh, you know, go along for the ride. Um, and so that's, that's what I realized is, is part of how we can make this financial offering to startups. Um, that's, that's part of how we show we're really a long-term partnership. So we don't, there's, there's a lot of different shops out there and they do things a lot of different ways. There's, you know, kind of a, something that's big right now is you go and you just ask them to build a, an app for you and then they go away, right? And you pay them however much you're going to pay and then you, you walk, they walk away. And I just don't think that that is the long-term partnership that startups need. They really need software development. It, it never ends. As long as you have somebody who wants your product, there's always something to be done on it. You know, I tell people you, you should budget it kind of like electricity. It's like a utility. You need to just have it in the budget and be ready to pay for it ongoing because that's how software development is. It's just this ongoing thing. And a lot of people who aren't in, the software development industry, they don't quite understand that. They think, no, I come and pay for it and then I'll wait, you know, six months or a year and then I'll come and, and buy something new. Like, no, it's, it's ongoing. It's always going to be there. So we want to be a, a long-term partner instead of just somebody who comes in real quick and leaves. And the thing is that when you're doing software development, the thing that is the most valuable is the knowledge in the developers' heads. Um, all of the stuff that they've created and the understanding that they have. So you don't want that walking out the door anyways. Um, you, want, you want to be able to hold on to that long term so that they can continue to improve and improve. You know, this is the, the funny thing too, is that if you've got such a, an easy, if you can relate your idea so easily that it can be just handed off in a, in a short set of requirements and they carve out an application and then you're done, <laughs> but that's, that is so counter to a true interactive and formative application development processes. I mean, it's, yeah. if you can just carve it off into one time thing, that's basically like the affiliate marketing site right. of apps. Like it's right. just like, I, I can do this thing and it does one thing and, and maybe people find it versus like really, how do you possibly think about building, you know, empathy into your development process, which is again, like such a core foundation. We don't, you don't think of it necessarily when you're, when you're doing requirements to like, make sure this is empathetic to the end consumer. Like, no, that's, that's how a developer thinks when they talk with you, they talk with your customers. It's a better development process involves a continuing relationship between you and your developers. Right? Yeah. And if you're building something that's kind of this one-off could be built and then the developers can go away, you're probably not building something that's some huge, you know, thing that's going to happen. Maybe you're just trying to get an MVP out the door, right? Some kind of proof of concept or something like that. That might be one, one thing, but if your app is so simple, um, then, you know, it's, it's probably not a big idea. Uh, the big ideas are the ones that it's something that hasn't been done before and you really need a lot of technical competence to be there for the whole ride. Yeah, you you want to, you want something that when you present it to a development team, they go, ooh, right. That's, I wonder how we're gonna do that. And like, oh yeah, <laughs> like you said, versus like, I've got this thing. It's like it, 
it's the difference between going to Fiverr and getting someone <laughs> to do like a thing for you and actually investing in an agency. And it, it's not unlike marketing, right? Like you can go and, hey, look, I can get someone to whip off a great logo, uh, to right. do a poster for me. I can go to FedEx Printing and they'll do a phenomenal job. I can go to Moo and get amazing business cards done. But that doesn't actually talk about brands. It doesn't talk about what you're trying to emote when you're creating your imagery. And that's the difference between going to agency versus going to Moo.com and just picking a nifty looking template. It may work but it's almost accidental right. if it does work. And then that's it. The relationship starts and ends with the click of the pay now button. <laughs> right. And that's where we often you know, find our customers are at. We usually aren't getting on board right at the beginning. Got this brand new idea, just, just figured it out last week and needed to, you know, usually people are going to go out there and they're going to prototype. They're going to use these tools that are available. Kind of the stuff you talked about at the beginning of there's so much you can do right now that you don't need to be a coder, but those all typically go into a prototype. Like let's just prove that there's something there, maybe be able to get first customers, um, show that there's some kind of value, but we're, we come in usually right after that in this transition point of, okay, let's turn this into a serious software development effort. Now. It sounds like, a lot of this comes from your own experience in, in doing some of your own building. Uh, has, has How much of it sort of came from the walls that you may have, have hit yourself as you were doing some of those early ideas into you know, trying to turn them into an, an actionable thing? Yeah. And so a, a lot of how I run series code comes from yeah, years and years of, there's a lot of beating your head against the wall in software development. Um, and, uh, you know, we have a, a kind of an internal method we call the Denver method um, of doing things. It's, you know, I don't, I don't dislike Agile. Um, in fact, we're an Agile shop and I believe in the, the, the principles of Agile, but there's become this kind of dogma around it um, that says you must do things this way, this way, and this way. And I'm like, that's not, that's not true. You don't have to do them those ways. And a lot of those things um, slow you down and create, generate waste. Um, so I, I've, I've spent lots of time thinking about it and kind of working through my own process to get that down um, so that we can do it a better way, more efficient way. It's really interesting too, because like you said, if you get into the sort of the, these dogmatic processes and, and God love them, right? They're, they're, especially when you're managing teams at scale, right. it can be a really, really important part of it. You have to create a certain amount of rigor and process and so that you can be free within that rigor. And, and I think that's really when you're scaling your shop and you have 200 developers, yeah, you're going to need a bit of a different, you know, way of right. thinking versus agile. I always like, I liken it to the, you know, I worked with a team and they were great. Love these guys. They're phenomenal. You know, and they would say like, Hey, we're agile. I'm like, no, you just don't have any idea what you're doing on Monday. That's not agile. <laughs> that's that's not like agile. not having a plan is not agile. <laughs> They're like, but we're iterative. I'm like, well, yeah. Iterative meaning you, you just, you have no idea what you did yesterday. So you're going to start again today. It's, <laughs> this is great. It's like groundhog day every Monday, which if applied to the other things, uh, it was more like they were pushing back against the hardened waterfall process that was in the project management office. And right. God help you. If you work anywhere that has a PMO, Oh, I, good luck and may your God go with you. Right. That's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> things are not going to go smoothly. Yeah. Uh, but you, I mean, you, you hit on it, right? It's the iterative model, which is, is the heart of agile. Um, not just, you know, Hey, you're back to Monday. What are we working on now? But that you, uh, figure out small chunks of value that you can deliver and you build that first instead of the whole waterfall, you know, fat delivery of, Hey, we're going to go build something for a year and deliver it. And who knows, right. The, all the studies show that, um, you know, most, you know, it's like two thirds or more of, of features and stuff that we think people want. They don't actually want, they never use. Uh, and these are yes, professionals right. in the PMO office, right? Who are, who are figuring these things out and, and in the product management groups, but it's, it's much better in an iterative cycle to say, okay, what's the most important thing we can build right now. Let's build that over the next you know, two to four weeks. You know, let's, let's have a, a short cycle here, get it out there in front of people, see what they like, and then iterate on that and build either improve it or build the next thing. Well, and the thing you brought up but too, like the uh, dogma is like just such a perfect description of it. Like you, you end up with these sort of warring factions of, of management styles and development methodologies where people spend more time arguing over the, the, 
the attachment to the methodology than they do to the outcomes that they're trying to create. And you end up with people who are like arguing over who's more agile than the other. And they're like, this is not a, this is not a scale of measurement of success. The success is, did you bring a feature to, to the market, you know, right. to the customer who's going to, going to do it. And, and again, like you said, this is, you probably get a ton of people who are like, all right, so I went to Upwork and I tried this thing out and I'm, I'm 300 hours in and I, I don't know what I'm, I don't think I'm managing this anymore. I need, I need help. And this is where you are such a perfect sort of transition for folks who I think they almost got to fall on their face a little and, right. and know, and they got to find the limitations and, and maybe that's natural, right? It's maybe it's, they just have to, I think we all have to trip a bit and go, Ooh, okay. Now I know why I want to lean on a professional, like I said, with this beautiful sort of agency approach. And again, adding this sort of the true skin in the game, the equity bound metric of measurement of how you engage with it. It's just such a beautiful bi-directional relationship. Now the neat thing I'm going to call on is, uh, see, you've done some development, you've built products, you've built teams, not your schooling background. You, <laughs> you have a law degree. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that's an, it's an interesting part of how I got into Serious Code. Because um, so software development was my first love. My dad taught me how to code on a Commodore 64 when I was seven years old. So I was, I was one of those guys, right? Nice. And, um, <laughs> you know, I dropped out of high school when I was uh, 15, 16 years old. And so I only went to a year and a half of high school. And I started community college because I just was bored and I wanted to do something. And in that same time, I got an internship. I, I knew how to code and I needed a job and I saw one for a programmer. I was like, well, that sounds interesting. And so I kind of just fell into software development. Um, it seems like a natural progression, but back then it, it felt like, oh, I'm just, just found this thing. And, you know, I, I never, you know, I remember going to my computer science classes and, you know, I remember once just getting so frustrated with the professor that they were doing it wrong. I just blurted out in the middle of the class what the right way to do it. And he looked at the board, he's like, oh yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> uh, you know, and I never did real well, you know, my, like grade wise, because um, I just wasn't so bored. I just, you know, wasn't really enjoying the time. I was like, man, I, I could be having a lot more fun at home or at work, you know, doing some actual coding. But, you know, I did it because I, I you have to have a degree, you know, it's just one of those things. It, you want to make sure your, your resume gets past the people who are just hucking out resumes because, you know, they have a whole stack of them they got to go through. It's nice to have the, the degree on there. But the thing is, I, I worked for about 15 years. I, I moved up as high as I could um, being a hands-on contributor. And when I looked at how software development was happening in corporations, I didn't like what I saw. I saw developers who weren't really engaged. They didn't really like doing the work. It was just a job. They did it. And I saw you know, executives who use things like the dogma of agile, we talked about that. The, one of the ones I, you know, that gets me the most is velocity, right? I, I'm a big believer in measuring, you know, cause, cause what's measured improves, right? But um, so velocity is one of those things. You can track it, you can see how the team's doing, you can help use it to forecast, but it gets distorted. And now all of a sudden it's, well, why was your velocity lower than this? Why wasn't your velocity higher? What can we do to raise your velocity? And that's just the wrong way, using it as the stick to beat developers with. And I just didn't like this whole environment. So I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to completely switch careers. I don't want to be in that anymore. I'm going to go be a litigator. I'm going to go to law school in the evenings. Um, and I did that. And so I continued working full time. Uh, I was going to law school in the evenings. And then I started this business halfway through it. Um, because thinking that my career was going to be over in software development, I was able to take a few risks of, of ideas that I had had that I thought might make software development better. And they actually worked out. And so I got to, to work with some of the best developers I've ever worked with who are you know, grateful and love what they're doing. And I was able to provide them an environment that made them want to be there. We took a, uh, the Q12 survey by Gallup for um, engagement and we rank in the top 7% of organizations globally for engagement of our, uh, our people, which um, is something I'm really proud of. And that it was kind of a complete turnaround from how I felt when I was going into law school, coming out the other side, I was like, okay, I have to build a business around this because there's a lot of people who, um, A, developers who want to work at a shop where they're appreciated and um, a lot of people who could use the, what we've discovered to make something cool. It sounds like the relationship is 
an important part that you've built into how you you look at the success of of anything is that how did that did, did you discover that did you, you you've got you've actually unpacked a lot of things which some people go to three to four years of of you know advanced behavioral psychology <laughs> it sounds like you figured a lot of stuff out and, and put it into action well that's the thing you know it always frustrated me the, the software development shops and you have uh, the, the free food that you get in the foosball table and the cafeteria and the dry cleaning on site. They do all these things to want to make you want to work there, but then they beat you down uh, when you're at your desk, right? With the, you know, <laughs> exactly. wh why are we, why are we a week late on this? Even though they were the one that asked you to do these other side projects or why is your velocity not as high as this person's? What can we do to, you know, the, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, foosball tables aren't going to make somebody being, you know, feel, like they want to be doing the work when they're being you know kicked over here and so i knew part of what i needed to do was build a culture that um i mean it really comes around engagement and you know the studies on engagement show that it's only about one third of workers who are actually engaged who actually want to be there and want to um you know further the mission of the company there's actually a third on the bottom who are actively disengaged they're actually like trying to hurt the company they work for um, and then there's this middle ground the third in the middle that just they're just, you know, they don't really care. It's, it's a job and, and they're doing it. It's like, I want people who are all on that top one third who really want to be there and love what we're doing. And so, you know, we, we put things in place to help make sure that that's the kind of people that we have. It's, it's neat that you, you pull that out because if we look at any measurement of statistics and, and engagement and, and health of, of, of a team or an organization, it's funny that we say like, you know, 30% are, are actively engaged and people are like, Ooh, you know, that's neat. And then you say like, well, there's 30% who are basically just ambivalent. Like they're just right. hanging out. They're there and they're not going away, but they're not really, you know, at 501, they're tapping out. God right. bless them. Right. That's just what's going to be, let's, you know, there's going to be that, that sort of middle ground. But they, we quietly didn't talk about the fact that there's people who are like, F this place. Right. <laughs> I'm stealing code. I'm injecting just garbage into the system. Like I just, I don't, not only do I not care, I actively, actively don't care about what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm going to hurt this place. It's funny. I, I was at a restaurant uh, yesterday and one of the workers is leaving, walking out the door. And what are they saying as they're walking? Like, I hate this place. I'm like, Ooh, that is not good. <laughs> and you're just thinking, Boy, oh boy, I hope that wasn't the guy that cooked my food. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is, I think, a, such a foundation to what culture. Culture is, you know, many people talk about what, what culture means. And, and I, I think I, I often use Ben Horowitz's thing. He says culture is the way that, the way that they, the, culture is the way they act when you're not looking. <laughs> right. And, and it's true, right? Really like, so these top down culture initiatives and, and these like, Hey, we're going to do team building. Like, Hey, look, inviting a bunch of people to an ax throwing thing, but then <laughs> treating them terribly right. the other three months of the year of the quarter, like it's not going to, to do that. So it's culture. So how, how do you internally measure what is motivating and, and keeping your people engaged? Well, so it sounds really simple, um, but it's basically following the golden rule. It's that simple. And and many people, I think, think that and they're like, well, come on, give me more than that. But that's something we just don't do, right? We don't think about what I like it. If I was, if somebody was doing to me what I'm doing to this, this person right here. Um, and, and we have, you know, one example of that, for example, is, um, I saw in salaried employees, right, who are expected to do 40-ish hours a week. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, the war room time, right, there's something that they got to get down, you know, are expected to work the 50, 55, 60. But it, it's just kind of this, they're, they're expected to do it. Sometimes they're expected to do it all the time, right? It's just that's the way life is. And there's no, no reward. There's no compensation. There's no, hey, you worked really hard this time. Why don't you take some time off over here? So for example, what we do is every hour is paid, right? Um, and that was part of, even though the way we structure our things, we have all contractors, so we have to do it that way. But um, even for folks who come in who are 
on a salary. We want to make sure that we aren't um, taking advantage of people just because of the way that the business relationship works. So we make sure that they get paid for every hour that they work so that they don't feel like they're taken advantage of that happens so much. Um, we also do some other things like I don't believe developers can estimate their tasks better than somebody else, like their team captain or a project manager. And there's studies that, that back that up. And so I feel like that whole game of uh, having developers do these estimates and then using it you know, as kind of the stick to say, hey, why didn't this get done last week? Um, we toss that out. I actually try to keep uh, estimates away from developers and make sure that the team captain is the one who kind of understands the speed that, that they work at. Sure, we'll ask if once in a while if we need some help getting direction, but we avoid the, the deadline thing. That's a huge thing that developers hate is, you know, it's if we're doing something new, something creative that hasn't been done before, how can we really say it's going to take this long? Those really should be estimates, but they aren't used as estimates by uh, the business side, the other folks, right? And so we'll and, and there's also something called Parkinson law, right? That the, the work will expand to take the available time. I don't even want them to have those estimates because on the off chance that the estimate is actually the high end, um, the work will expand to take it up. And then you've just used up any kind of, you know, spare time you would have had normally. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons that I, I do it that way, but I found that it makes developers much happier not to have constant looming deadlines over their heads. Well, this is the... The neat thing, and I, one of the really cool initiatives I saw that came out of uh, Basecamp, uh, so, so Jason Freed uh, and David Hannemeyer Hansen, DHH on, on Twitter, he's sort of famous for getting involved in exciting political debates <laughs> and, <laughs> and startup debates. And, and they really, they, they use a lot of the stuff that you just talked about is the idea that like estimates and, and unrealistic deadlines, you know, when we create these artificial boundaries and then you measure somebody against it and call it velocity, you're, you're not actually, you're not actually achieving what you wanted to, which was to build something and, and build in a way that's going to be valuable to the person that uses it. And this is this interesting thing of being empathetic throughout the entirety of the development process, including like you said, estimates and whatever, because otherwise it's the, the old gold rat thing, right? Show me how you measure me and I'll show you how I behave. You want right. better velocity, kid? All right. I'll, you know, you want to measure me in lines of code? Right. Guess what? I'm writing garbage code, right? <laughs> because they're versus actually saying, what do we want it to do? Whether it's like, hey, you know, Mozilla was famous for saying like, whatever we do, it has to be under a certain amount of delivery time in in milliseconds right so every time we add code it can't blow that up and so that was their measurement of success you know so you can set product level metrics and then but then that becomes a, con a consumer thing so how much of the the project management and the product management then lives inside series code when you're engaged with a a, a customer yeah and and, and so, you know, this isn't an easy thing, right? Um, it, it's actually, you know, it'd be great to just completely get, get rid of estimates, right? The no estimates crowd. Um, and, you know, I like that. And if I run my own business, if I'm building my own product, that's how I would do it. But the thing is that startups have, you know, investors who want to know how far the money's going to go. So there's still a need for this kind of information. Um, it's it really our client base. It, it really depends. Sometimes we are the project managers, right? We, we sit down with the you know, CEO or whoever we're working with and elicit the requirements and document it and put together the timeline and then track towards that to, to let them know. But then there's other clients that we have that have a project management department. They, they do this stuff already. Um, and so we don't have to get involved there, but typically the, you know, the small company that's coming to us as a startup, we have a, a project management, product management function within there as well. And that's the whole point. Like a lot of these companies, when they're coming to us, they've had a, a CTO who's been the person doing the work <laughs> and they've been yes, doing right. it for, for you know, a year or something like that. And, and usually they're just tired and ready to go get a job job and um, you know, want somebody else to do it. So we're coming in and, and that's what the startup is getting is you're going from one person. So, you know, one brain on, on the, the idea to at least three uh, or four, right? So we have a team captain. So our basic technical team is a team captain and then a front end developer and a back end developer. 
Um, and then you can add into that a project manager too. So you're going from one person to three or four. So right there, you have a better, uh, better, you know, brain trust to get problems solved. This is the, the interesting thing too, of with development, this is, this is not a throw more people at it to make it move faster. Right. And in fact, it, it has a, it's detrimental to suddenly toss, you know, unaware resources into this pool of supposedly, you know, just code monkeys that we, you know, people think it's like, oh, it is, you can write code. How many lines of code can you write in a day? I extrapolate <laughs> the, like, it's, it's very much, you know, okay, what are, what are we trying to achieve? What are the, you know, what's it look like? What's the user story? You know, okay, cool. What's the user experience going to be? What's, you know, and, and understanding all these things and then actually getting to code. Okay, well, how much is existing code? The larger it becomes now, the more you have to think about testing and, and other right. stuff. And also, hey, m most technical co-founders like you said are are nose down in code doing stuff and probably aren't really thinking about the rigor of a scalable code base right which is including stuff like Correct. building you know unit tests and building stuff building thinking about how to do continuous deployments and stuff like that versus you your team has a vested interest right in doing that out of the gate so that you effectively speed up your ability to get to what matters, right? And it's always a balancing act because unit tests and stuff. So I, I believe now hundred um, percent when I learned test-driven design uh, been a, a 10 years ago now, you know, I was like, wow, this is a, a game changer. Um, it's amazing of, of the quality that can come out. The problem is it is more expensive. So it takes more time to get it done. And sometimes you don't want to do that on a very first version of something because especially like a prototype, a proof of concept, because you don't know if that's actually what you're going to have or how drastically it's going to change. But once something is, you know, yep, this is built. This is, this is the way it's going to go. It's going to be our product for years to come. You absolutely want some kind of unit test suite. Um, we come in and yeah, oftentimes that's just does not exist. And oftentimes it's not on the mind of the non-technical you know, founder. So we have to talk about it and, and explain why it's good to have that kind of stuff. And you know, it's a, it's a balancing act. We, you can't just stop everything for three months and build a test suite, right? There's pretty much nobody who's going to let you do that. So you have to figure out how you can kind of work it in as you go so that, you know, there's a balance between that and the features that actually make a company money. Yeah, well, if when they designed the first SpaceX, you know, Falcon rocket, they didn't start with the seatbelts. They right. started with the bloody rocket. Like, is this thing going to get off the ground? Okay, now let's work on the seatbelts. Like, that's if you can't build the thing that's going to do something, then there's, like you said, it's there's sometimes we get a little ahead of ourselves with process. The hard part, like you said, this is the balance. It's really easy to just forget to go back and, right. <laughs> and, and, and retrofit some of that stuff. And, well, and, and, you know, forget to go back or just, you're moving so fast, right? Cause the, the market is demanding. We need to get this out, this out, this out. And if you don't have the money to, you know, scale the, the team up to have somebody say dedicated to more or more people, I usually don't like to dedicate somebody just to the, the, the unit test side of things. I like it for each developer to do the unit test as part of the code that they're building. But you're right, if you have some super aggressive timeline, you just can't, don't have a moment to stop and catch your breath. Um, those usually though, they need to stop or else they're gonna find a way to stop themselves. It's, it's, it's very self-correcting at that right. point. <laughs> Sadly, this is how it works. Right? <laughs> they will, you know, don't worry, we'll, we'll build in those, those gates by accident, whether they they're meant to be there or not. Right. The when you're bringing on on people this is always interesting because you you have to hire a very specific type of developer that's probably fresh but not too fresh right it's <laughs> because they've got to be able to think and move quickly but also have enough experience in that they're going to get like hey look this is this is the stuff we don't want to do uh, right. but we we do need to get there yeah, you know, I tell people that when when I have to pick a developer, usually I'm going to pick somebody who's 
more junior has fewer years because we can groom them in the way that we think software development should be. And we don't, there's not those bad habits that we've got to break. Right. But our model actually helps balance that out. We put on a team, a team captain who has, you know, 10 years or more of experience, but is somebody that we've worked with and see that they get it. They understand how to do this and how to do this well. And then we put, um, you know, more junior developers with them, some, you know, in the four to five year range. But the thing is that we, we find there's a four to one ratio between them. We don't want uh, a team captain running a huge team, you know, 10 or 15 developers, because they just don't have the time to uh, focus on each person individually. And that's one of the problems of those larger teams that developers are just out there doing their own thing. They feel like they're, they're kind of lost in this big sea. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? I have no, no guidance here. We want to make sure that the team captains are guiding uh, each developer. And so that's really, there's, you know, four to one, there's a, a five person team is kind of our optimal team. And their job as a team captain is to review, you know, they, they assign tasks, they think about technical architecture and direction, but on the other end, they review every line of code to make sure it meets their, their standard. And if it isn't there, they kick it back to the developer and show them how to do it again. And that way you have this balancing of, um, all of the code kind of coming up to the quality that you would expect from somebody who's been doing this for 10 or more years. Well, this is the, <clears throat> the neat thing too, in, in the patterns of, of development. And we talk about like Conway's law as sort of a famous mm. depiction yeah. of the idea that we build systems that, that, that map to the communication patterns within our team. Yep. And, and it's uh, so this is neat because you effectively can really create a systemized, a system, a systematic view of what every product's gonna look like. And it gets better and better versus an internal development team where you literally have to first figure out how to get people to work together. And then from there, get them to actually build a product and then think about scaling at the same time. This gives them as a, as a consumer of, of series code, as a, as a partner, they can just say, I can focus 100% on product. And then from there, I can then start to maybe start bringing my own development teams and start to integrate and start to carry some of that over onto my side of the, the fence, so to speak. Yeah, and I like that you brought up Conway's Law because um, when I was talking about that four to one ratio, that's one of the other things that helps address is, you know, people wonder why they have these huge development teams, well, huge, I mean, but let's say, you know, 15, 20 people and they, they wonder why they built a monolith. And it's because your team's a monolith. You, <laughs> you, have, you have one leader who can't <laughs> manage all of you, can't mentor all of the people here or, or can give, you know, 30 minutes a week to each person. Um, and it's just this huge monolithic team that all talks to everybody. One of the reasons we like to keep our team small is it, it matches a microservices type of architecture where if you have, you know, instead of, instead of, um, you know, one big 20 person team, let's have four or five teams and each can be working on their own thing. And by design through Conway's law that they, they each become their own modules, components that they're building that are, are more like microservices and less like a monolith. And so startups usually don't need to be thinking about that uh, at the stage that we're starting with them. But that's something, you know, like I said, we want to be a long-term partner. We want to be the software development department for them. So, you know, a few years down the road after those next funding rounds have come in and, and they're really beginning to scale, we can build into that proper model. But we also know that now. So what we're building now should be able to you know, easily convert to that. And you know, oftentimes you have this, we've built a monolith up front and now we need to split it into microservices um, a, a couple of years down the road. And that is a real pain to do. Yeah, that's uh, of the things that you you don't want to be retrofitting. Uh, it's the breakout to microservices, and it's this is an interesting one. Actually, I, I wanted to explore this with you. Uh, so also to so pull from a a, a, a DHH and a and a, a freedism, I would say, is that they they very much welcome the monolith in many cases because in, there are times when depending on what you're looking to do with the platform you're building, you may be over engineering Correct. by building out this microservices. And they talk about the size of Basecamp where it has like 
it it has like 370 controllers and, and it's all one just giant not monolithic code base right. but they've literally built the entire team around how to do that right and that's the their choice and the way that this product behaves and it works at a certain speed and it scales with them as they need so they've they've very much set the the gates and guardrails to where they know they need to be and they understand the limitations of the platform. It also helps that they built the bloody framework, you know, Ruby on Rails that, that <laughs> right. got it there. So it's when you, when you built the machine, it's easy to understand how to use the machine. <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's so true. And so there is definitely over-engineering of making everything a microservice when it doesn't really need to be. I like to, that, and that's again why I like the team size, the five person team. You know, a person by themselves can't really do enough to say, you know, this is the service that this person provides, right? There's just not enough time in the day for them to write enough code for it to be large enough. I like five person team size because what they can handle just naturally fits into what might be the right amount, the right size for some kind of service. Um, and then if it gets larger than that, that's when I like to think about breaking it out. There are lots of places that a monolith might make sense. And a lot of times in your MVP, it's, it's there as well because um, it's cheaper and you can get something done faster. And the idea to keep in mind is, is knowing, are we going to need to switch from this or is this what we're going to keep using moving forward? Now, the, the interesting thing is because you're so tightly in, intertwined with the, you know, your, your customer, I guess it would, however we want to describe it, your, 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 your client uh, who you're working with, and you've got your team captains, you've got your level of, of product management and project management that are going on. It's really interesting because if people don't really know how to work and what are the boundaries of, you know, whether it's like traditional, like sort of the pragmatic model of like, here's where product management, here's where product marketing is. And you know, how, how much time do you find yourself spending just working out the handoffs and the relationship in those early phases. It's, and also curious how much of it goes as those customers expect it to go before they realize <laughs> like, Oh wow, there's, I need to be way more involved or way less involved. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, it's a, it's a case by case kind of basis, but you know, yeah, we have one that we're working on right now that it, it's, you know, it was a, a month, you know, it was a couple of weeks type of project. But when you factor in all the other stuff, the handoff and the, okay, now it's your turn. You have to review this. You have to go through this process and you have to make sure this is what you want. You know, a couple more weeks can get added on and, and suddenly a project size can be double of what was expected, right? So there, there is a, a lot of that. And it, it really just depends on um, the client and the kind of work that you're, you're doing at that moment. And this is the challenge of, I think product management is one of the more interesting areas that I, I love studying great product managers because of they have to have a, an, an, an ability to work and understand code, but not necessarily to code themselves. Right. They have to understand the customer experience and ultimately what they're building towards. They also have to understand how much it costs. What's like, they have to know what they have to understand burn down. They have to understand right. the burn rate of the organization. There's, it's such a very interesting, they're like, they're like the CEO of the product. Right. Correct. But yeah. it's, a, it's a very unique uh, sort of personality that can do that very, very well. And in a startup that has just a few people, usually you don't have the luxury of having somebody dedicated to that. And so we find that we're usually, that's the partnership of the team captain has to play a, a bit of a role of that, especially on the side of understanding, um, you know, like the burn down or, or the, the burn rate, you know, what it's costing, how many hours are going into something. But then you also need the it, it typically turns out to be the CEO in, in a small startup that's you know, pre-funding. Um, they have to be there to be able to define requirements and what is it that we want to build and where do we want to go? And the two work together to figure out, okay, what is the most, you know, you know, the highest ROI basically, where really should we be focusing on this and how do we narrow this down to just the stuff that is really going to make the most impact. Now, how much of your, your legal background that was acquired along the way comes into play with your day-to-day. -day. I would, I would bet that especially working with startups, it, it's probably pretty important. 
It can be. Um, I, I find myself a lot of times talking to people and I, I'm not your lawyer. I'm, I, can't, I can't, you know, I'm not advising you on this, but there's all kinds of, of legal things surrounding startups, you know, even from something as simple as the, the terms of use and the privacy policies and stuff um, to formation of the contracts. Um, I think my legal background is why series code, the financial package that we offer actually exists. I, you know, towards the end of school, I took um, a venture law class, which is all about uh, how this works, like how a safe or a kiss works and how um, the financing rounds work. And by taking all that knowledge and figuring it out is how we could offer uh, the, the actual will work for equity and, and what we do there. So most shops that do this kind of thing, they just have a fixed rate. They just say, you're going to give us 5% or 7% or 10% of your company, period. And then we'll work at, at a reduced rate for you. And I don't think that that's fair to the, the company because software development is different. Everybody needs a different amount there. I don't think there is a one size fits all. So what we do instead is, is, is we have a, like our standard program is a 50, 50. So you take 50% of your invoice and you pay um, at least 50% in cash. And then you can put up to 50% on an equity balance that we carry forward. Um, and then each month, you know, they can continue accumulating that. And then at a series, you know, a round or whatever their next round is going to be, um, we just participate like we were an investor on, say, a convertible note. Um, and this way, it really depends on how much work that they need. That's what determines our percentage. We could be as small as 1% in the company. We could be as large as 10%. We would have had to do millions of dollars of work to, to get there, at least hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Um, but I think it's more fair, and it lets somebody kind of scale, grow up, or, or scale back as needed um, without worrying about, well, you know, I gave away 10% of my company. I really need to get, you know, every, everything I can out of that. Um, and it prevents the other side, right? Imagine somebody who takes 5% and they put in a bunch of work and feel like they should be done, like they don't need to do anymore. They're kind of going to stop versus us. You need us to work. We work more. We accumulate a little bit more um, towards the bottom line. Well, this is the very interesting thing of of this dynamic relationship and it really does become bi-directional and this is right like you said too many times people have this kind of fixed thing and so what you end up with is if a founder and a founding team and especially investors once investors start getting involved they're going to look and say like hey you're cutting five percent out towards this this entity that who knows like what we're actually getting, what we want out of them. Right. And most likely those investors are thinking, well, let me put my development team in there. Like I've got a, <laughs> a set that I've worked with before. And in a way they're probably already thinking ahead of how to dilute out that 5% to actually right. make it what it is versus being dynamic and variable so that it's the founder's choice. I tell you, lock-in and, and freedom are things that we we think about it all the time. We hear all this time, like this idea of like cloud lock-in or product lock-in. Right. Well, we don't actually move stuff around. Like no one has like, Hey, right. this, this application I built that I can put it anywhere. You're going to put it on iOS. You're going to put it on Android. You're going to put it in the cloud. You're going to do, but you like the feeling that if you had to, yeah. you could lift it up and move it around if needed. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. That's so true. Now, how does, how did your experiences shape, you know, in some of the difficult interactions you've had? Because I imagine at some point there's bound to have been even like not, not necessarily here with series code and your, your clients, but you've generally great ideas also come from people learning the hard way. Right. <laughs> let's, let's talk about some of the tough reasons that got you to think about building this platform. Well, and that's, Part of, you know, you said, how does law school uh, help me on the day to day? But there's, there's a, this larger kind of overarching. When I was 21, I started a, uh, a startup and um, I got taken advantage of by a client, you know, who didn't pay their bills for, you know, months and months and months. And, um, you know, the things that they did and they said were, I had no idea because I was a 21, 22, 23 year old kid, right? Um, and you know, I, I did get burned on that. And as part of coming out of that, it's like, I don't know if I ever want to have you know, one of these businesses again, because um, it's so easy just to lose everything or for somebody not to pay or for somebody to declare bankruptcy. Right. Um, and going through law school, I realized, wait, a ton of the things that that client did, they're not legal. Like they, they <laughs> yeah. wouldn't have held up in the court of law. Right. So having that background now and knowing, I mean, there's, there's a huge part of 
you're a lawyer, people don't screw with you, right? It's just <laughs> one of those things. Not the kind, not the, not the people you want to go around, you know, messing with, um, and that helps out. But just knowing that the things that people are, are you know, that happened before, they shouldn't have happened, and that knowledge helped me uh, have the faith to move forward in this one, and know that you know. The, the world won't end if we have one of those clients. Usually you just want to get rid of them, right? That's but right. Knowing, you, at some point you just want to shake them out because you're like, look, yeah. they're not going to pay this invoice no matter how much I chase them. I'm going to stop chasing. Yeah. <laughs> but knowing that, that they shouldn't be doing the things that they're doing and you don't have to put up with it, right? Is, is one of those, I mean, I would recommend, law school is a big investment. I'd recommend it to anybody, even if you're not going to use it because you learn so much about how, uh, the business and legal world can can work and can help you out. Well, it becomes a, an interesting problem of legal and enforceable. They're right. and they're differentiated in a contract and in terms of any contract, employment contract, product contract, relationship with a your cell phone vendor. For there's there's certain things that they may be written in there, but they're actually they're legal, however, not enforceable, especially state by state. It's a whole, yeah. You know. I remember, I remember going through my classes, every single class had at least one of those things. I was like, wait, that's in like every contract of this type and they can't enforce it. But there's, there's a thing people feel like it was in a contract. I read it. I signed my name to it. Therefore I'm bound by it. And I was like, wow, that's really not the case. It's, it's actually amazing how many times that isn't the case and people just don't know it. I, I, when I worked for one organization, every relationship we would have with a vendor would like the, like, here it is, you know, this here's your, your standard T's and C's, they would call it, you know, yep. and then it would, it would come back to them like a grade nine English essay, just littered with red <laughs> ink and scratch marks. And it would be like, no, here's our, you know, indemnification that we're adding in and all this different stuff. And I would, I would look at the going, this vendor's not going to let us do this. And they're like, trust us. This is, they know they've got the lawyers that we've got. We just, this is the dance we do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing after coming out of law school, uh, I don't know if I'd ever hired a lawyer before that. And right at the end of law school, I hired four lawyers <laughs> just for all the different <laughs> things, you know, the business side and the IP side. And, and uh, you know, that's, it, it's strange. You think you go through law school. Okay. You can be your own lawyer. Well, no, the thing is law is so specific. You really need a lawyer who's uh, an expert in the field that you need something in. Um, so I mean, I recommend always, it's expensive, right? Lawyers are expensive, but they, they pay off in dividends. Well, then this is a neat thing too, because well, I mean, heck you can get that as a service too. Right. But even th this is an interesting challenge of, uh, I actually used a, a company called UpCounsel. And I think I actually got recommended to through a podcast. I was talking with, with somebody and they said like, hey, look, I, no, I, don't, I don't need a lawyer full time. I was able to use like UpCounsel. And then I got the first ever like, you know, when a, when a startup closes their doors, it's usually like, hey, we're, we're, we're so bummed. You know, we, 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 we did our best. We had a great run. It was a great four years. Hey, thank you very much to all of our customers. We will keep the service alive for another 30 days. But unfortunately, we, we've had to close the doors. Right. I, I got the up council, which was basically like lawyers as a service and specifically targeted at like startup setup uh, and, and small business. I guess they just for whatever reason, I didn't read much more into it other than the really cool email, which was basically a terms of conditions from them saying, you know, hitherto and wherefore under, like it was a lot of legalese basically saying, hey, we're really bummed and we got to close the doors. <laughs> right. <laughs> the way a lawyer says it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and even I remember going to, it was like a team building event one time and our the chief counsel for my company was on my team and because we like mixed and matched people and we're literally going on a scavenger hunt it's it was the most hilarious thing so we go on the scavenger hunt and it was like okay here we've got you know john and eric and and and, and joanne are on the team and then like they like oh just fill out this quick little you know like the waiver that you just like check off and you <laughs> sign at the back Right. And literally, like, here's my chief counselor. She's going through it, going, no one signed that. No one signed that. Like, it's, <laughs> you're going to be running around the city. And it just was a normal indemnification, you know, clause. And she's just like, the same thing. She's like, this is not enforceable based on British Columbia law. <laughs> We're going to rewrite it. And I'm like, it's okay. We'll just sign it. We're fine. <laughs> Lawyers are paranoid. <laughs> they really are. And probably for good reason, right? <laughs> 
Well, and this is the interesting thing, like the, the greatest contract written by the greatest lawyer can be then torn down by another great lawyer. And oh, yeah. it, it depends. You, you never want to be in those situations. But like you said, I think it's a fundamental lesson, especially for people that are getting into, you know, becoming a startup. Like just take a quick, take a quick course on, you know, like venture law, right. especially when it comes to like understanding term sheets and doing stuff like that. Like that's, Boy, oh boy, there's just story after story of people who are like, I had no idea what was going on when I, even just setting the founder's equity. Right. Yeah. And I think you said it. I, I, you know, I hadn't actually thought of that before, but I had taken the investor course, right? So one of those kind of boot camp, one day, two day kind of things. And then I'd taken the venture law class. And that class taught me so much more. And there's so much to, to learn about it. Um, but anybody who's starting up and, and thinks they're going to take venture capital or, or outside investment, it really would make a lot of sense to find a class like that and audit it at least, right? And just, just go and get that information because there's a ton and you really need a guide to, to take you through it. Well, and people think that like, you know, a lot of people are like, yeah, I watch Shark Tank. I know how to start a company. You're like, <laughs> yeah, no, right. you, you know how to start a company that just got 51% of its equity taken over by, by somebody. And there's a reason why those numbers, I've become sort of intimately involved in understanding the venture and the law and, and, and all the startup stuff. So it's, I love watching those things because you're like, you can tell the people that have done it before when they're there, right. they're like, ah, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Like, let's go for it. And the other ones who are like, Mm, nope, can't do it. <laughs> and you're like, they're trying to sort of hammer this deal. Because guess what? It's like poker. The house is, it's always in favor of the house. No matter how many times you win, <laughs> somebody else has, has lost in order to allow you to win. And yep. generally, when you're in VCs, VCs aren't in the game of giving away money. Right. It's, uh, there's definite terms and conditions that are on you, you know, getting that term sheet put over in your hands. Yeah. <laughs> so John, any, any advice, uh, to people that, you know, I, they got an idea and they want to think about, can I make this into a business? What's, what's the litmus test that you lay in front of them? Well, oftentimes, you know, they're coming to us farther down, right? So they've already gone through that. There's, you know, there's all of that stuff on starting up a, a business that is outside of our hands. It's completely in theirs, figuring out if it's an idea that's got legs on it, um, figuring out if this is the path you want to go down. Cause it's a tough path being a, a founder of, you know, a, a new product company. Um, it's going to be years of your life. If you're, if you're married, you better make sure the spouse and kids are, are on board. Um, and it's going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be a trial. Um, really when, when it, comes to if you're a non-technical founder um you know you can try to go out there and do it yourself but you know i've started keeping count for every 40 applications it takes 40 applications for a developer for us to find the one that we keep we have this long process that we go through a test and and uh, a trial period and the whole thing um and if you're gonna if you don't know code you don't know how to do it yourself you don't really know what you're going to manage to um, it's like finding a needle in a haystack there. So that's where we can help out. If, you know, come to us with the idea. You know, it's it's not a huge vetting process because um, who really knows, right? <laughs> There's venture capitalists out there making bets all the time on things that fail. It's really tough to know which one is going to have legs or not. So we look for what are the ones that we can really get excited about. Um, you know, what are the ones that we are going to make us want to keep going during those hard times. And if we're on the same page there, then we'd love to help out. That's cool. Uh, John, it's, uh, I, could, I could spend all day just stealing lessons from you. And <laughs> you know, we'll get together again because I really do want to talk a bit more about that vetting process is very interesting. And, and I think folks would love to hear <clears throat> sort of your thought process again is like when you taking this idea and mapping it relative to anecdotal experience, market timing. There's, there's just so many things where, you know, and, and I would, I would imagine you've got a lot of hard lessons, you know, learned and, and stuff that you, you approach it in a systematic way, which is really good. But before we close up, what are, what's the best way for folks if they want to get a hold of you, John, and, and, and get, get in touch with series code and, and learn more about what you and the team are doing. Yeah, they should head over to seriescode.com. So it's, 
just like it sounds, series, S-E-R-I-E-S, code, C-O-D-E.com. And there they can get more information about the process that we go through. And then there's an email uh, address right on there that they can send to if they're interested in finding out more. And of course, we'll have stuff in the show notes uh, for folks that, that can you know, easily click out. Uh, and this is, yeah, it's been a real pleasure, John. And, and like I said, I'm excited when I saw, when I saw what serious code was that really, this is something that I'm like, like I said, I, I hope one day to be a client. <laughs> this is, this is something where I, I, I really, I, I believe in, in the way you're doing things is, is really, really good. And also it's just such a, a great give back to founders. Um, cause I, this is one of the things that, you know, people can lose the ability to bring an idea to reality right. because they get stuck doing stuff that's just out of their wheelhouse. Yeah. And there are, there are teams that can do this stuff for you. And the equity relationship is just so cool. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited by what, what you're doing. So well, thanks for having uh, me here, Eric. I really do appreciate it. It's been great yeah, so we'll show. send we'll send folks along. And uh, uh, thanks again, John. Uh, and again, for folks, if you want to make sure you check out seriescode.com, uh, make sure you also rate this podcast. It's always nice for us to be able to speaking of, you know, metrics we like to get measured by. It's nice to get pushed up to the, the higher on the ratings list. So if you like this, if you want to hear more great stories like what John and the Series Code team have going on, uh, let's do that. So John Steele, thank you very much for this. It's been an absolute pleasure to spend time with you today. Thank you. Mm-hmm.